Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about calming horses, education, and options. This podcast is brought to you by Confidence EQ from Bimeda. If you've ever been around horses for any amount of time, you've probably encountered an anxious horse. And even the calmest horses can have their nervous moments because, well, that's the nature of horses. To help us better understand our animals and how to support and calm them, we're joined tonight by two experts, Dr. Kami Haleski, a PhD researcher and senior lecturer at the University of Kentucky, and Dr. Jenny Bahanko, a veterinary behaviorist uh, with Animal uh, Behavior Consultants of Alabama. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to start with Dr. Haliski. Can you tell us about your background and interest in animal behavior? I've had the really good fortune to be around horses my whole life. Um, our family raised, trained, and showed horses, and I was lucky to be able to pursue my passion as an actual career. Um, I eventually did my PhD in animal behavior and welfare at Michigan State University and ended up teaching there in their horse management program for 25 years. Uh, since 2016, I've been teaching at the University of Kentucky in Lexington in their equine science and management program. And basically, I take every opportunity I can get to go to a professional development conference or you know, any piece of information I can get related to horse behavior and welfare. And Dr. Bahunko, can you tell us about your background in equine behavior and your work as a veterinary behaviorist? Sure. Um, so I've been lucky as well to always share my life with equids. Um, my grandfather was an equine veterinarian. Um, I currently own five Arabian horses. Two of them are homebred. I'm mainly a trail rider, but I've done some dressage and endurance. Um, I've been practicing veterinary medicine for 22 years, and I've had a special interest in veterinary behavior for 20 of those years. So in, in 2016, I was accepted into a residency program with the American, American College of Veterinary Behaviorists to obtain my specialty. Um, I have a behavior exclusive practice in Birmingham, Alabama, and I mainly see canine, feline, equine, and avian cases. I also do teach ethology and behavior at both Tuskegee uh, University uh, Vet School and uh, Auburn Vet uh, College of Veterinary Medicine as well. So I have a question for both of you. I think that as horse people, we're all familiar with working with horse trainers. You know, most of us have taken lessons or used a trainer at some time to work with our horses and ourselves. Can you tell us, and Cami, we'll start with you, um, Dr. Haliski, and then we'll go to Dr. Bahanko, but what is the difference between a, a horse trainer and an equine behaviorist and then a veterinary behaviorist? Uh, well, I'll try to work on the horse trainer and horse behaviorist part. And I'm guessing much of our audience recognizes there is a huge spectrum of, of horse trainers. Um, you have really, really good learning theory educated horse trainers and and you have trainers trying to do things the quick way and sometimes not the ethical way. Um, you know, for myself, from an equine behavior standpoint, it's more about trying to understand the horse's nature, trying to understand their cognition and, and trying to think through why is the horse reacting like this? Why are they fearful in this situation? How can I make the life of this horse a little bit easier? Okay. And Dr. Bahanko, then how does being a veterinarian add to that? So uh, the main reasons I see for behavior issues in my patients, really there are four. One, one is medical. So we always talk about uh, ruling out the medical before the behavior. There are a lot of medical causes for behavioral issues. Um, secondly, sometimes they just don't understand the skills being asked of them. Um, there's also sometimes issues with just husbandry and the lack of opportunity for the animal to exhibit their normal species-specific behavior. And then the last one, and the one I see most often, is just emotional volatility type issues. So my metaphor is always, um, so for instance, if you have a child who's not doing well in math class, is that child not just just not understanding the math skills? If that's the case, then you can hire a tutor to teach those skills, which is more of what I think about in the in the realm of training, right? You're teaching skills. But if your child is having trouble learning math because they are so anxious and there's so much emotional volatility that that primitive part of their brain 
is sort of on overload and they can't turn that thinking part of their brain back on, um, then you can drill skills into them all day long, but they're not going to be able to process that and they're not going to be able to learn. So, um, you know, a lot of times the, the behaviorist type um, situation comes in when we're talking about those emotional volatility issues. So with veterinary behavior, obviously very often I'm dealing with those emotional volatility issues, but I'm also um, able to assess uh, and, and to, to, to at least think about what medical roulettes there might be for some of these behavioral issues as well. Well, before we jump into the questions that we have for you tonight, I want to give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We'll be starting with the questions everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question that you'd like to ask live or you'd like a clarification on a response, you can enter that in the chat window in front of you if you're joining us via your computer. Uh, we're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. If you're listening to our archive or our podcast and are interested in joining us live during our events, you can register to receive our announcements to register for Ask the Horse Live at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, I went really fast because I know we have a ton of questions. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Dr. Bahunka, we have a question from Kathy in California, and she wants to know if stomach ulcers contribute to anxiety in horses and cause undesirable behavior. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there have been a lot of studies in a lot of different species about gastric ulcers and um, showing that that animals and people with gastric ulcers have higher measured stress hormones. They exhibit more stress-related behaviors. The question's always, is this a chicken or egg situation? And it's probably both. You've got chronic stress that predisposes to, to ulcers, and then chronic pain leads to stress and anxiety. Um, one point I think is really important to remember is that pain and fear are great teachers. So that primitive part of the brain we talked about, that limb, it's called the limbic system, forms very, very strong associations in response to, to pain and fear, um, really preferentially so. And to a certain extent, our survival depends on our brains and bodies learning very strongly and very quickly what can harm us so we can avoid it. Horses, as prey animals in particular, are really good one-trial learners with painful and scary things. So gastric ulcers, like other things like back pain, uh, the, the pain can be sporadic, unpredictable, um, and, and extreme. And so the horse may well have an acute pain episode that he associates with any number of things in the environment or with situations. So I've seen horses with this kind of pain form some really interesting um, associations and phobias with objects and situations and even individuals due to that. Um, so once again, I'm a huge advocate of always check medical, always rule out medical before behavioral, rule out those medical issues, rule out pain, you may still need to address the residual behavior, but make absolutely sure it's not stemming from a medical issue. Dr. Hileski, our next question is for you, and it, I would say, is, was probably our most popular question during registration. Um, and it's from Kimberly in Pennsylvania, but many people, there are lots of Kimberleys out there. Um, so Kimberly says, my horse is herd bound and becomes upset when I ride alone. Do you have any tips on how to calm him down when I'm riding away from his friends? So this would be your typical buddy sour horse. What recommendations do you have? Right. And this is a, a common problem and a challenging problem. Um, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of steps. And I think one thing is somewhat helpful to realize is how incredibly natural this is for the horse. Horses have a strong motivation to feel safe around other horses. So when we take them in a situation all by themselves, that can be a real challenge because it goes against their nature. It's putting them in such a vulnerable uh, situation as an animal that still thinks of itself as a prey animal. Um, so a couple of things I try to do is, you know, start in little steps. You know, you don't have to go to the opposite side of the farm at first. You can decide, all right, there's a round pen right next to the pasture. I'm just going to work in the round pen for a while. And uh, then later on, maybe there's a pasture a little further away that you can ride in that pasture. And it's more about establishing uh, quality, calm episodes of riding than worrying about okay, we really, really nailed our dressage test pattern on this particular ride. Um, the other thing, I do think as a person gets more confident and they can provide a certain level of, I hate to use this term, but comfort to that horse. Um, I know Andrew McLean out of Australia talks more and more about 
establishing trust with horses and attachment theory. And, and there probably is something to be said about horses building up a rapport with a person to where, like most of the time, when I take a horse away from its buddies, the horse I'm with is totally fine. However, the horse that's left behind might still be really upset. And that's, in some ways, even a harder thing to deal with. So how long would you expect it to take to work on an issue like this? Like, is this, is this something that has a timeline or does the horse create the timeline? I mean, it, it, largely the horse is creating the timeline because it depends a ton on the horse, what their background is, what their basic emotional reactivity is, and, and what the skill level is of, of the horse person. You know, if a person is very confident and comfortable, you know, like my daughter is 28 and she can be riding our Arabian or off the track thoroughbred. And she thinks when they act up, it's funny. She laughs. <laughs> and so it's just, it, it becomes almost a non-issue because then the horse is like, well, okay, apparently this is not as upsetting as I thought. And, you know, it might take only a couple of weeks where I remember as a teenager, I had a horse or two where this would take a couple of years, but it was because my skill set was so different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that I know there are a lot and lots of studies that are coming out now about how horses can definitely read human emotion um, and can respond to human emotion, which I think I, that, that was a really good point. And Dr. Yeah, Martin, and even oh, some sorry. of the work even some of the work related to like heart rates and, mm -hmm. you know, as, as a horse heart rate goes high, a human heart rate goes high, or as a human heart rate goes high, the horse heart rate goes high. So this whole thing we've been told by trainers and instructors for years that we feed off each other's emotions continues to be very relevant. Yeah. So our next question is for Dr. Bahanko, and it's from Martin in Australia. Actually, we have two questions that are very similar. Martin in Australia wants to know, when is ACE suitable for using on horses to help them calm down? And we have Judith in Georgia who wants to know, can a horse learn not to fear something, for example, or is cows, um, if exposed repeatedly while under ACE? So those are fantastic questions. Um, so I'll just start with with the idea um, or the question of like, what is ACE, right? What is, what kind of drug is azopromazine? Um, azopromazine is classified as an antipsychotic medication. It is not a sedative and it is not an anxiolytic, meaning it does not affect anxiety level. Um, it's in the same chemical family as Thorazine and it's used primarily, it's only primary use is for chemical restraint. Um, it was discontinued for use in humans in the 1950s due to the number and severity of side effects. Um, and people even reported, they reported dysphoria, didn't make them feel very good. So it's not a sedative, it's not an anxiolytic. Um, it gives the animal no anti-anxiety benefits. So essentially, um, your dog, your cat, your horse can still be frightened, but essentially can't physically express it at all. Um, so along those lines, you can actually get situations where it does not desensitize over time. Um, the fear does not desensitize over time. It can even get worse um, because, again, it's just masking the horse's ability to express that they are upset or anxious, not their actual anxiety. Um, the drugs have also been proven to, de to decrease learning ability. Um, uh, ACE uh, has been proven to or or uh, antipsychotics in general to decrease learning ability, decrease focus, and decrease motivation. Um, there are medications that that do provide um, uh, considerable anxiolytic effects, and so there are much better medications. The other issue with azopromazine is that um, it, it has potentially pretty severe side effects. Um, it can cause ataxia, meaning your horse could be dizzy or not be able to keep keep his balance very well. Um, it can cause cardiac, significant heart effects, cardiac effects. It can cause hypotension, um, low blood pressure, um, and it also reduces seizure threshold. So if you have animals that are predisposed to epilepsy or seizures, they can make that worse as well. So there are definitely better drugs for sure um, as far as 
both helping your animals with anxiety and as far as decreasing the anxiety so that they can better learn. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about those later on. Our next question is for Dr. Haleski, and it's from Maureen, Maureen in Texas, who says her horses are normally not high strung, but New Year's and Fourth of July are difficult because of the fireworks. We just had Fourth of July. I know my horses were running around. Um, do you have any suggestions for helping horses through that? We'll start with you, Dr. Haleski. Yeah, and, and having just come off that holiday weekend, it's definitely something that I think about quite a bit. Uh, I have certainly had more experience with super fearful dogs in relationship to fireworks and horses. Most of my horses um, are out on pasture a lot, especially during the summer. And, you know, I, I've looked out before and they're just kind of looking at the fireworks and they don't seem to be terribly upset. But in general, I would say a lot of horses do habituate to things like loud noises faster than say the average dog. But if you know you have a horse that is, let's say, hypersensitive to loud, loud noises, you may want to make extra sure they're in a safe environment. Um, you know, it's not the time to have them, let's say, in a pasture with high tensile fence, whereas if they do take off running, they might really badly get hurt. Um, you might want to think about having a calm buddy horse in with them. You might want to think about extra hay. If you've got good secure stalls, that might be a good night for them to be in the barn. Um, I know there are some video channels like YouTube, for example, you can actually find looping tracks that play fireworks noises. So you can start playing them fairly soft and you can keep raising the volume. And for example, if you're giving the horse treats while they're hearing this stuff, um, they, they may be able to adapt to the fact that, hey, this is not quite as horrific as I thought. And Dr. Bahanko, if do you have any anything to add or any options if an owner feels like they do need a sedative for their horse during fireworks? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this was a this is a Fourth of July is always a rough weekend for veterinary behaviorists <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because it does seem to be you're you're absolutely right that uh, dogs tend to be the most um, bothered by fireworks um, and uh, it, it was a rough weekend for sure. But mm -hmm. um, so I do use a lot of medications, particularly in my small animal patients for uh, noise phobia and firework phobia. And I agree that um, I don't see that as much in horses. Um, there are, however, there are good situational medications, um, much better than azapromazine. So uh, prescription medications that you may want to talk to your vet about if your horses are severely uh, phobic. Uh, you can use things like Dermosidan gel, I think um, works very well. That has been shown um, to have anti-anxiety effects as well. It, it will, it can cause sedation as well, but it does cause, it, it does have anti-anxiety effects. Um, tramadol is actually being used in horses uh, quite a bit uh, as well. Um, and so those are two that, that I will often use if we have to have situational uh, sedation or situational um, anxiolysis. Alprazolam is another one that has been used in horses as well. Um, and then there also are supplements that have been at least, well, there are some studies on many of the supplements. Um, a lot of the, the data is anecdotal on many of the supplements, but some of them I think anecdotally have been shown to be helpful, as, particularly with mild, <clears throat> excuse me, mild to moderate phobia and mild to moderate anxiety. Okay. Um, our next question is for you, Dr. Bahunko. Uh, Pat in Indiana wants to know if you can briefly touch on diet and its relation to horse anxiety. Uh, Pat says that a boarding barn that uh, they were at briefly fed uh, their horse sweet feed and the horse went crazy. <laughs> um, I, I think we can all, all relate to that. So, uh, <laughs> What does nutrition have to do with horse behavior? So, you know, the studies have not been as rewarding, I don't think, and I I would love to hear from you as well. Um, but the studies haven't been as rewarding as I as you would have expected them to be, as far as diet and its relationship to um, to anxiety and to I guess energy level or um, hyperactivity in 
in horses. Um, I do think that there is some evidence, some data that supports the idea of the higher fat, um, lower carb type diets um, being somewhat helpful. Uh, have, what do you think about that, Dr. Haleski? Well, yeah, this one's always tricky. I've heard it said so many times that when my horse gets sweet feed, they just mm -hmm. get so excitable <laughs> and so forth. Um, so certainly we have anecdotal evidence of that. Sometimes in my experience, what I've tended to see is, all right, this set of horses getting grass hay and let's say just a little bit of oats. Yes, they're calmer, but quite honestly, they may not even look as amazing from the standpoint of a body condition score and shiny, glossy, glowing with good health. So what I like to do is compare horses of similar body condition, mm -hmm. similar glowing good health, and meaning they're getting all the right groceries. Now do I actually see a difference in this horse when he was on this feed versus this feed? Again, the anecdotal evidence is high. The research evidence is much lower. And the other thing, so, the other thing that I think is interesting as well with behavior and um, diet is going back to that species-specific behavior, right? Horses, um, I, I often see, again, this is anecdotal, but issues even more so in the way the horses are fed versus what they are fed. So you have an animal who is meant to be a, essentially a trickle feeder, um, a grazing animal who is supposed to be uh, basically just eating forage type food and for most of their time budget, most of their day. Um, and they are then confined into a, in a stall and they're fed high, like two high concentrate meals, right? And, and the opportunity for foraging is taken away from them. So I think that may be part of what we see too. Um, I don't have any studies, any specific studies to support just that. Um, taking away what they're fed versus how they're fed. But I still think that when we when we take away our horse's natural, you know, species specific behavior and we take away opportunities for that, that we definitely do see behavior changes as well, not and not for the better. Yeah. And as a horse owner right. who has gone through this, like feeling like this happened with my own horse, looking back on it now and knowing what I know now, I wonder if it was actually gastric ulcers, that the change in diet mm. and the high right. concentration feed that was different than how I fed maybe led to some, you know, some gastric issues that, that then led to anxiety um, in a horse that later did have gastric ulcers. So anyway. And the, qu the question too is always as well, um, like Dr. Haleski pointed out, is what is, what is the horse's natural or, or normal um, diet? And with a diet change, we're learning more and more and more about um, the GI biome. The, the bugs that live in, in all of our guts, actually, but horses in particular. Um, so if if a horse is on one particular type of diet, they have you know bugs in their in their gut that are that are colonizing there because they're on that particular diet. So changing that can actually change um, neurotransmitters and all sorts of other things. We all have a a brain in our gut. When we say we have a gut yeah. feeling about something, it's that's really a gut feeling. So we have a whole neural yeah. connection in there as well. So that's the other question: is, you know, is is it is is it the change in diet? What what is that affecting as far as our biome is concerned? Neurotransmitters, that type of a thing as well. Yeah, that's we a have, great point. We have a question from our live audience. Um, I'm going to give this one to Dr. Haleski. It's from Nancy, who has an Arabian, um, and she says he doesn't. When he doesn't want to go somewhere, he rises up on his hind legs. What can I do to help? Uh, she also says he doesn't ever rear all the way up. He just rises. And I, Nancy, I have one just like this, and I understand your frustration. <laughs> With it. Yeah, isn't that so, that's in the breed standard, isn't it? I'm just yeah. kidding. Maybe known or two. I and I mine's a <laughs> mine's a part Arab and and it definitely her uh, her Arab part shines through when she pulls this one. So, <laughs> um, Dr. Hillis, um, you also have a, a a lot of experience with these these Arabian horses, which I love. So I I joke, but I I love them. So. <laughs> right. So you know, there's a, there's part of me that says 
so I, I still didn't hear what the problem is. <laughs> um, <laughs> as a person that's written a lot of Arabians overall, sometimes they're just, they're like so exuberant, they just don't know where to put their energy. And so sometimes <laughs> it goes up. And over the years, I've had a few horses that, you know, if they only pop a few inches off the ground, I don't even get horribly upset. And I sort of go to extinction where some things if you just basically ignore and act like it was not an issue whatsoever gradually that behavior goes away and away and away now it's totally different if it gets to be more than a pop-up um, because obviously a true rare has the danger of falling over backwards and that's one of the most dangerous thing a horse can do uh, it, it would seem like if you have the opportunity with this horse to let's say trail ride it with a, a super calm laid back buddy horse. It might be less likely to do that. If you have the opportunity to ride this horse in an arena different times before you go on your trail ride, that, you know, a lot of horses find the arena to be not super stimulating. So they can kind of work out any little small quirks before they go out on the trail ride. Um, and Jenny also works with Arabians, so she might have some great ideas here too. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that sometimes they don't know where to put that energy so it goes up. So that's just what, what I always think too is just moving the horse forward. Um it's yeah. stillness has never really has has never really been my friend with my Arabs as far as <laughs> um, you know, just asking them to stand still when they are when they're high energy. So I generally will uh and, and it's interesting, this is more, these studies have been more in dogs, but there have been several studies that have come out recently showing that that high energy or anxious dogs in particular, that that very, um, that very high level physical activity, very high um, adrenaline physical activity can actually make that worse over time, but engaging engaging their brain is really what can help more. So that's the other thing. My my kids are really smart, and um, if they get bored, a lot of times we, we have issues too. So I will very often um, just engage their brain. And if I, I I tend to be a timid rider, I've ridden my whole life, but I'm pretty timid. So if I am at all concerned, I will get off of of my horses, and then I will change the game to. Um, some sort of uh, either marker training or something that they really enjoy, but that really turns their brain on. And it's interesting, a lot of times that energy can really get tamped down just because it, it tires them out a little bit more to use their brain than to use their bodies. <laughs> yeah. So that is, that is such a great point is there is no shame in getting off these horses. There, there are tons of times if I'm riding a youngster and they're starting to get what I would say a little bit squirrely. I think nothing of getting off and walking with them for the next half to one mile. And then when I can see their brain is right again, then I get mm -hmm. back on. Yeah, I'm pushing 50. So I do that a lot more than I used to. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> bounce like I used to. So yeah, I, I would say that starts at around 40. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Nancy is saying that her horse is doing it when he doesn't want to go somewhere. And I understand where she's coming from because you guys are talking about the energy. And my mm. heart Arab is that way. Like if we're at the beginning of a ride, there's no sense in holding her. We just walk circles. You got to walk. We got to, we have to keep moving because she's ready to go. Um, but she's also one who, if you're going down the trail and it wise and I want to go to the right and she's like, no, I'd rather go to the left. I say, no, we're going to the right, and she'll do that little pop-up in front that Nancy's describing. Do you have a recommendation for for that situation? So I'm potentially about to be very unpopular with some people, but <laughs> this is where I would actually, assuming she has the appropriate riding skills to do so, to me, that's a time where a pop with the crop, um, to, and it can be a tap. It, can, it doesn't have to be much. You're trying to encourage forward. And one of you said it earlier, forward is your friend. And you're, you're trying, somewhere along the way, this horse has learned that a good resistance is to do a pop-up. And we have to unteach that. And whether we start with in hand or we involve a trainer in the process or we use a crop in the process, 
Um, you know, I've certainly had horses and they happen to be Arabians, but that's where my main background is, that they decided, oh, a good resistance thing is to pop up when I don't want to do something. And because I think they make people a little bit unsure of themselves, sometimes they get out of things. So we have to be very careful that we don't let them learn a bad habit. Um, we have another question from our live audience. It's from Kelsey, and she says she has a mare that gets anxious and tense at competitions. She can relax as they work through the warm-up, but tenses up again when she goes into the dressage arena. She wants to know if you have any advice for helping the mare relax again when they enter the, sh the new ring um, and have just a bit of time before competing. So Dr. Haliski, I'm gonna give this one to you, and I'm gonna say to Kelsey, as a fellow dressage rider, um, <laughs> I know sometimes you have to check in and see if you're breathing in that <laughs> once you enter your test. That for me, that bell rings. There's some kind of operant conditioning there happening to me because I hear that <laughs> bell rings and the world goes blank. So, um, uh, Dr. Heleski. Yeah, and I, you know, without seeing this in person or in a video, it's a little hard to say. Um, I know for myself, on some of my what I have often lovingly referred to as fragile-minded horses. I need to sort of be in a state of zen, just complete calmness to get them to deal with the show ring competition ring. And when I go to a show with my daughter, who like I said, is 28, so she's been doing this for a long time, I'm as much her sports psychologist as anything. And just trying to get her to be breathing and thinking the right positive thoughts. We, we try super hard to get there crazy early in the morning to get the horse to move around whatever is allowed by the show. So if, if we're allowed to walk around the edge of the outside of the dressage ring and the edge of the inside of the dressage ring, even if it's just in hand, we do that. And um, I give a ton of treats to the horse when we're anywhere close to where the judge usually sits, especially if there's a tent set up, for example. Uh, I had one horse that was, <laughs> Somehow she did know the difference between the show ring and the regular ring, and she would get super nervous coming down the center line and halting. She had had one time where a bicycle went by the ring right at that time and scared her really badly. So we had to spend so much time going down the center line, down the center line, treat, 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 and probably took a year before we got her over that. So. Those are a couple ideas without actually seeing it. And Dr. Haleski, you mentioned the treats. So when you're riding, how do you use treats to uh, reinforce your horse's behavior? Um, okay, so we do a lot of treats. Uh, again, my daughter and I, and this has been over the last few years since I've really kind of come to recognize the power of positive reinforcement and treats. We, you know, if the horse is standing nicely to be girthed up, they get a treat. If they're, if they come right up to the gate and they're super easy to catch, they get a treat. I, you know, it's all sorts of small things. And now I'm trying to remember, I was on a Zoom call earlier this morning. We were talking about building up the bank account of the horse with lots of positive things. Yeah. So then when you need to do a negative thing, you're still in the positive. Um, but even, you know, like if I'm, if I'm giving an injection to a horse and I have to give this injection every week for a while, I'll give him treats during the injection. As far as when riding, uh, what we've taught this young off the track thoroughbred we have right now is, okay, after you've done something cool, when we're practicing, we're going to stop and you can immediately turn your head and, and you'll get a treat. Um, and, you know, sometimes He's a little silly about it because he's been known to do that on the center line. He does a nice stop. He <laughs> might turn his head and look for his treat. Mm -hmm. But that's that's a small price to pay. Yeah, and we use we use a lot of um, and and this actually came from marine mammal trainers, right? We use a lot of um, uh, positive reinforcement marker-based training, meaning we use a, a a sound marker, which means yes, that's the behavior I want, and that sound has been paired enough times with a positive reinforcement, whether it's a treat or a scratch or whatever that the horse wants, has been paired enough that 
what that ends up meaning is yes, that's the behavior that we want. A treat is coming later because you know marine mammal trainers can't throw a fish, you know, fast enough um, to into the middle of a of a pool to tell the dolphin, boom, that's what we want. So that's how um, a lot of this stuff came about. And there's nothing really magical about a clicker. A lot of people call this clicker training, but I don't use a clicker. I just use um, a yes, a, a noise. But that can be a way to tell the horse while they're being ridden, yes, that's what I want, and later on a treat will be coming. Yes, agreed. What happens when the horse doesn't care if it's getting a treat? Uh, that's a great question. Well, for, <laughs> if you're you working with, oh, sorry. Well, I was going to say, if you're working with young foals, um, you know, and they're still with their mother, they quite often don't care yet about treats, but they love to have either their face or their neck or their withers or their chest scratch. So scritch scratch for foals is amazing. Um, I've had a few adult horses that would rather be rubbed hard on their withers than have a food treat. Um, so I, I think if you're paying attention, you can find something other than a treat if you happen to have a non-food motivated horse. And if you do have a horse who's normally food motivated that at that time is not food motivated, you have to ask yourself why. Usually that indicates to me that we've got anxiety, fear, um, something that makes the horse not want to take that treat. Okay. Yeah. Um, we have a question from our live audience. It's from Allison. I think Dr. Pahanko, I'll give this to you. She said that she has a cow horse mare who is very manageable until she gets into the show pen. She's been scoped twice and is ulcer free. Allison wants to know if there are any supplements or treatments that could help her focus in the show pen while maintaining her athletic edge. So I'm picturing cow horses and they're super intense in what they're doing and really driven to do that work. Um, so how do you get them to calm down when they're so eager uh, for that work, Dr. Bahanko? So a few things. Well, I'll address the idea of, of medication or supplements. Um, first off, horses are unique in that they are very large and they are ridden animals. So we have to think about the safety of the rider or handler in addition to their safety, right? Um, also, there are rules and regulations about what can and can't be given. Um, and some of those are USEF go governed. Some of them are governed by um, the uh, the, the breed organizations or the show organizations. Um, so that's a whole different ball of wax. Um, there are some supplements that have shown some promise. There have not been a whole lot of really great studies on most of the supplements. Um, and again, I think it's dependent on, on the individual rules as to what is um, gonna be uh, considered legal or not legal to give. I always think if I have a horse, um, who is that emotionally volatile, whether, you know, whatever the emotion is, but that emotionally worked up. My question is always, what can I do to slowly, um, as Dr. Haleski was talking about before, how can I slowly desensitize my horse to being able to have a little bit more impulse control and a little bit um, less emotional volatility to whatever stimulus is going on? So um, I will try to back off and do some work with that horse um, on on sort of desensitizing and working that horse under threshold and then slowly ratcheting that stimulus up to try to get a little bit more impulse control with that horse. Um, other, other medications, I, I just, I'm always very, very concerned that horses who are being ridden and who are um, in situations where they are competing, um, most prescription medications are gonna cause some degree of sedation or some degree of, of slight, you know, neurologic issues. So I'm always very, very wary of, of using anything like that in competition. Um, do you have anything else to add to that, Dr. Haleski? I wanted to just uh, emphasize the importance of what you just said about threshold. Um, I don't think we talk about that enough. And you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why so many horses do a really nice job at the home farm. And then you take them out to a big show, a big event with an audience, and, and you've now thrown all these extra stimuli at them. Right. And we, because it's expensive partially, both in time and money, 
we don't always do a good job of taking them to little bitty shows that only had like one stimuli and then going to a slightly bigger show that adds yet another stimuli. Um, and again, that's something I think all of us need to work harder to think through. We have another question from our live audience. Um, Dr. Bahunko, I'll give this one to you. It's from Marianne, who is curious if either of you have used sense or smell to overcome anxiety in horses. She's giving an example mm -hmm. of using smell to calm wild horses, such as the smell of a friend's manure. Uh, Dr. Bahunko? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't think we think about olfactory or, or smell um, as much as we should for most species. Um, I, I know that uh, I've, I've started to use it a little bit more um, in, uh, with scent discrimination to teach, uh, like to teach dogs and puppies what they can and can't chew. Um, and I use that with cats quite a bit more as well. Um, there have been some studies in cats and I've started to, to uh, work with cats as far as um, using a familiar scent in order to uh, make them, because cats are very, very attached to their environment, as are horses. So using familiar scents to, um, to help them feel more comfortable in, in uh, novels, novel environments or novel situations. I haven't done that as much with horses, but I think there's a lot of promise, particularly in situations where um, you know, your horses are, are trailering or are traveling to, uh, to compete. Um, so it's an interesting, I haven't done it a lot, but it is a very interesting subject and I definitely, one I want to explore more. Um, Dr. Haleski, have you used that at all? Yeah, again, I, I am not as up on this as I would like to be. I know mm -hmm. there are a couple supplements that work, for example, with appeasing pheromone. Uh, some of the anecdotal reports have been good on that. Some people get very comfortable with their essential oils and their aromatics. Um, again, personally, I don't have experience, but the one I would say definitely has an olfactory component when you're traveling, when you're going to shows is water. And mm. some horses are just mm. so, so fussy about new water. They, they will let themselves get into yeah. a state of sickness before they'll start drinking water. Um, I know I had one show mare that I would start a week before a show, adding a few tablespoons of apple juice to her water all the time, so that then when we traveled, I would take some of the home water, but if we were gonna be gone for four days, I couldn't always take enough. But if I could keep adding that apple juice, you know, it was a smell and a taste that, that she was used to, so I could get her to keep drinking. That's a, that's a great point. Um, again, it's a different species, but um, I have a, um, a Savannah cat, so a hybrid cat who is my demo cat. So she travels with me to demonstrate different behaviors. Um, and I started as a very young kitten. Um, I use lavender for her. I use the actual flowers, not the essential oils, because those can be dangerous to different species. But um, I started it from the very beginning using that in her carrier when we brought her home and using that in situations where she is calm and then used that in her carrier and her pen when we traveled, and that seemed to make a big difference. So I, I, I would imagine that using a certain scent that is familiar to them when, they, when you are working with them, when, when they are calm, say they enjoy being groomed or whatever, and you bring that scent into that experience, I would imagine that that would help um, or that that could be an association that would be a good one. We have another question from our live audience for Dr. Haleski. Melinda says that her fox hunter becomes anxious when other horses are cantering behind them, even if they're way far behind. She says he might leap to the side or whirl and buck her off, and that he hasn't always been this way, and she can't think of an incident that started it. In the meantime, she's been just riding at the back of a field. Do you have any recommendations for her? Well, one thing I've noticed, uh, in group lessons over the years and taking groups on trail rides and so forth is there are very few things as dangerous as having horses canter in a group. Um, some of their, you know, if you have a handful of horses with competitive tendencies or that originally were on the track thoroughbreds, um, that can bring back all sorts of memories about going faster and kind of sort of challenging each other. Um, and a fair number of the fox hunters I'm familiar with uh, actually are off the track thoroughbreds. So I don't, if, if her horse is reasonably content, 
being at the back of the pack. I don't think there's anything whatsoever wrong with that. Um, I, I know <laughs> for myself, it makes me really nervous to canter a horse in a in a group. Um, I just, and, and I you're think a licensed of all the bad things pack. that could happen. I agree. Hundred <laughs> percent. And and I'm sorry I was I interrupted there, uh, Dr. Haliski. But for our audience, you've been a a licensed exercise rider at the track, mm -hmm. haven't you? Yeah, yeah. We did when we had uh, racing Arabians at Michigan State. There was a six-year time period where I did gallop riding of the horses. Um, most of the time, though, we only had uh, usually three that we would gallop out at a time. Um, Dr. Bahunko, I think I interrupted. Did you have something to add? No, just that I agree 100%. I, 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 100%, I think that that can be a very volatile situation. Um, our next question is for Dr. Bahunko. Maria in South Carolina wants to know if a mare's cycle, if painful, can cause her to be jumpy and nervous. What can be done for this? So that's a great question as well. Um, I know uh, Dr. Sue McDonald, who's the behaviorist at um, UPenn's New Bolton Center, has some interesting things to say about this one. Um, interestingly enough, most mayors that are referred to New Bolton for ovariectomy are, they're first referred, they, they send them to the behavior service for evaluation first. And Dr. McDonald's team will take a thorough history and they generally will video the mayor's behavior in a stall for 24 hours. Often that'll shed a lot of behavior for recommend, or, or a lot of recommendations, um, a lot of light for recommendations on where to look medically for the source of discomfort. And according to their stats, more often than not, the source of the behavior issue has nothing to do with the ovaries. So they see everything from allergies, urinary issues, uh, enteroliths, orthopedic pain, and even sleep deprivation as causes for what the owner perceives as marish estrus behavior. So the upshot of that um, is that we tend often to jump to unwanted behavior in mares as just automatically being due to estrus. I mean, we, right, we use the term marish or bitchy or whatever. Um, so the question I always have for the owner is, one, what is she doing? Give me the specific behaviors that she's doing. Um, and then when is she doing it? So journal it. Journal it on a calendar as regards to the actual behaviors, the frequency, and if it's estrus related, truly, it should be occurring cyclically and should be much less frequent in the winter time. So um, it, all that to say, certainly, we go back to pain, obviously. Um, pain and discomfort can always cause um, behavioral issues. And remember that during estrus, the, their uterus, which is really big, gets um, really fil fluid filled and it gets very heavy. And this can cause tension on, in some mares, on the ligaments that attach the uterus to the body wall, so in the back area. So horses that do tend to be um, considerably more anxious or, uh, or grumpy during, um, during estrus, think of, again, think about medical issues like back problems, orthopedic pain. It's one of those things to keep in mind. And for people who are interested in more information about mare reproductive behavior, we have an article on thehorse.com that's really good that covers uh, these issues. It's at thehorse.com slash 19902. So you can check check that out to, to learn more about mare and mare behaviors. Um, our next question is for Dr. Haliski. It's from Mike in Caldwell, Idaho. And he wants to know, how can I help horses that don't like their feet worked on? Um, yeah, so we have, we have a few different things. I think I'm, would I be okay to also incorporate the fly spray question with this one? Yeah, I think that that's, yeah, we're, we're down to our last 10 minutes, so that would be great. Okay, because both of them involve a lot of the same steps. Um, whether you have a horse who is aversive to fly spray or a horse who is averse to having their feet handled, um, a lot of this is the issue of shaping by little steps, by little steps, by little steps. And so if I'm dealing with a youngster and I want to get them better about having their feet handled, ideally I have somebody help me hold the horse. And first I start by just basically stroking their legs, handling their legs. And when they're very comfortable with that, then I start to pick up the feet. Um, and I probably, in my current day and age, would also have the handler giving them some treats every now and then in response to them being really good about something. Um, eventually, 
I start kind of tapping at the feet and I always keep an extra set of farrier tools. So I would start, you know, picking at the foot, rasping a little bit. I might or might not do nippers because that's pretty hard for me at this stage of my life. Um, hind feet tend to be a little more problematic. The horse feels very vulnerable by nature when their hind legs are occupied. So you have to spend extra time with the hind feet. But there's no reason in the world that even a horse that has previously had a few bad experiences can't get over that. Um, and, and in some ways, the same thing with the fly spray. You know, if you, uh, quite often I will start just with a spray bottle of water. Partially it's a lot cheaper. And partially if the horse is averse to the smell of it, they don't have that factor. They can get used to how the spray feels on their skin. You can either start kind of high or kind of low, depending where your horse is sensitive. And again, in a perfect world, I might have somebody holding the horse, and when they stand still for a couple sprays, they get a treat. And then after a few sessions, I can move to an actual chemical fly spray. And of course, the fly spray, you just you always want to make super sure that you're not dealing with something that your particular horse um, is slightly allergic to. And so earlier we were talking about uh, scents and um, olfactory things in horses. And I have to wonder if fly spray, sometimes it's one that's not so pleasant to the horse, the smell of it. Do you think that that can cause challenges to horses? I have one that smells really wonderful and I use it and it works really well and my horses are all fine. I have a horse that's in training and they use a fly spray that smells horrible and I was there and I went to spray her and she reacted very differently than she does at home. I mean there could be other things you know that have changed but but do you think that that that's a possible cause of that? I mean I think it's certainly possible. I think the olfactory world of the horse is so much beyond our olfactory world that we don't really even understand. The other thing I would mention with horses is uh, like like an aerosol type spray to them is 100% different than a normal spray bottle. And, and just because to us, it's like, well, it's fly spray, who cares? I have had horses lose their mind because of all of a sudden using an aerosol fly spray on them. Okay. Um, Dr. Bahunko, our next question is for you. It's from Vandy in Kentucky who wants to know if Prozac can help settle a horse who just seems unsettled in his own skin. Uh, Vandy says they have a horse and they have tried um, many different behavior modifications. Yeah, that's a great question, um, specifically uh, because Prozac and its family of drugs have some unique properties that I think can be very helpful. Um, I, I have a lot of people um, with all of my species that start off saying, I don't want to drug my animal. I don't want my pet, my dog, my horse, my cat to act drugged, and neither do I. Um, I don't want to mask the underlying issues. I don't want to change your animal. I just want a, a, a happier animal. Um, so I want to address, address and change the underlying emotional associations. My goal is always to change the negative emotional associations to positive ones. So studies are very clear that chronic stress is detrimental to the brain's ability to form new neural, neural connections, which means to learn, right? Um, unlearn the bad stuff, relearn the good stuff. So here's the interesting thing about um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are uh, Prozac and its family, um, and those drugs increase the amount of available serotonin, which is the neurotransmitter that's been shown to contribute to a feeling of well-being and calmness, um, and it's known to be depleted in indiv individuals with chronic stress um, and, or anxiety issues. Um, so the interesting thing about SSRIs is that studies show that they can give the brain sort of a new lease on life that, so that they can, so that the brain can actually, it gives a new window of learning opportunity to form those new emotional associations and to dissolve the old ones. And that's my goal when using uh, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, it's also clear though that you need both that physiological help and you also need good science-based behavior modification in order to teach these new associations. Um, there have been lots and lots of studies in small animals and dogs and people on SSRIs. Um, there have been very few in horses. Um, so we, we don't know as much about how horses process those drugs. We don't know as much about the efficacy of those drugs, but we do have a pretty good idea of the fact that they are probably very safe. 
um, and that they don't have uh, quite as many side effects as drugs that are targeted at more neurochemicals than just serotonin. So, um, And Dr. Mahonko, I think that ties in pretty well with our, our next question. Um, because people are always looking for alternatives to pharmaceuticals. And this is from Kathy in North Carolina, and she wants to know, what are your thoughts on CBD or hemp oil <laughs> for horses to help in, in calming? So um, as much as we don't know about uh, how horses process SSRIs, we know nothing about how they process um, CBD oil. The problem with CBD, the, the several problems with CBD are there are lots of legal complications. So not all cannabis oil products um, have been declassified as controlled substances. So that varies by state, it varies by national laws, national laws often override state laws, and it's a hot potato issue because most government bodies really don't want to be involved with it. Um, there's, so it, it's, the FDA says they aren't food supplements, they're not an approved drug. So um, we're in that area where they're not regulated at all. So um, the Two biggest problems are there's a complete lack of peer-reviewed published studies in animals. There's one pretty good one in dogs showing um, moderate efficacy in controlling osteoarthritis pain. Um, there are no studies in horses. Um, there are no studies on behavioral issues. So we have no idea how horses metabolize the products. We have no idea of the efficacy, the effective dose, the potential side effects, safety. Um, we do know that all current studies in animals have shown at least some negative side effects of the drug. So the other problem is the, is the lack of regu regulation of the products. There's no regulation of pure, pure, excuse me, purity, um, efficacy. These products may, in many cases, they've been proven to contain toxins, molds, bacteria, um, or even other drugs. So, or they may contain no active ingredients whatsoever. So lots of unsubstantiated claims out there. Um, the safety is in question because some of these medic some of these products may be adulterated. Um, and veterinarians, this is why veterinarians are not allowed to really even recommend them, sell them, or talk about these products. So what's, what's happened at this point is basically it's, these are products you can buy at gas stations and malls, but your vet can't sell them or even talk to you about them. So in, in my particular, for, for my money, um, I'm just going to, the upshot for me is that I'll stick with more studied and even more importantly, more regulated uh, substances over something that we really don't know a whole lot about and that's not very well regulated. So I'd stay away from CBD at this point. Okay. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Dr. Hilliski, I'm going to jump to the, the mule question. Carolyn, Indiana says, wants to know if, you if you've ever worked with mules and if so, how does calming mules differ from calming horses in your opinion and experience? And this could go on for a whole hour, but I'm going to try really hard to keep it short. Uh, I have worked with working mules in developing parts of the world. So I've had a chance to work with mules, for example, in Honduras and Egypt. Um, in general, I would say that mules are often trickier than horses. And to me, if they don't have really good foundational training when they're youngsters, they are harder to reestablish trust, then like you can have a horse that's had some pretty darn difficult times and with the right type of work and really applying learning theory, you can get them back around. It seems to be much harder to do with mules. And uh, I will just mention, I had a PhD student, uh, Amy McLean, she's now at University of California, Davis. She is like the mule guru of all times. And um, you, you can look her up as a faculty member at UC Davis and any specific mule questions, she'll probably hate me for this, but she is the person to answer that. Well, it sounds like we could probably do a whole Ask the Horse Live just on mules. <laughs> so there's, there's Yeah, definitely, on any, definitely. On any topic that comes up, there, there's usually a, a mule question that goes along with it. So um, with that, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, I want to thank both of you, Dr. Heliski and Dr. Bahanko, for joining us. It was a really great conversation, and I think we covered a lot of ground that was super helpful. Thank you so much for having us here. Yes, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. And the hour went by fast. I told you it would. So, <laughs> I, I, 
I also want to thank our sponsor, Confidence, uh, Confidence EQ by Bymita. I hope you can join us next time if you're listening. We're going to be talking about bit pain in horses. Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great night.